Hi, welcome back to another episode of Real World Serverless, a podcast where I speak with real world practitioners and get their stories from the trenches. Today, I'm honored to be joined by Dale Salter from Account Guru. Hey, welcome to the show. Thanks, John. Thanks for having me on. I'm super excited to be here. So you've been with a cloud guru pretty much from the start and have gone through the whole journey of growing with the company. Um, can you tell us about yourself and a cloud guru for those listening who are not familiar with who they are? Yeah, so my name is Dale Salter and I've been a serverless developer now for the past four years at iCloud Guru. I joined very early on in the startup phase. I was the second developer. And um, previously to that, I worked at a software consultancy company that focused on .NET. So ACG or ACloud Guru is a completely serverless cloud training platform with a strong focus on keeping our learning really fun and engaging. And we've taught over 1 million students on how to pass their AWS exams, GCP exams, and Azure exams. And uh, we have a lot of content related to serverless. But not only do we teach serverless, our entire platform and ethos is all around serverless computing and has been that way since we've started. So we try to practice what we preach um, by really following a lot of the stuff that we teach in our, in our content uh, when we build the platform. And uh, just, to be, just to be specific, that um, the team that I work on and a part of what I do is actually building out that serverless uh, cloud training school. So it's been really, really exciting to, to you know, uh, started from when we're really tiny to where we are now. And um, just to put it in perspective, um, this is like not a really small serverless app. We're quite, quite large. Um, to put it in perspective, we have roughly uh, 240 million Lambda calls per month. So that's like about 100 Lambda invocations per second, 180 million API gateway calls a month, which is about 70 per second. And um, we're moving roughly 90 terabytes of data through CloudFront, which is around 300 megabytes a second of, of video content out to our students. So this is definitely not a, a small serverless application by any means. So um, a Cloud Guru was uh, serverless, uh, fully serverless from day one. Uh, do you know what was the reason for the guys to choose to go serverless uh, from those early days when the whole technology space for serverless uh, was still quite immature? Yeah, so really serverless was a need or came out of a necessity, essentially. Um, so Sam, our founder, had a very small amount of time. He took around three weeks off um, the job that he was working at the time to essentially build out this cloud cloud school. And he had only a tiny amount of time to do that. So he took his family down to Tasmania, which is a small state within Australia, and then he focused on trying to build a, a school or a product within um, that small amount of time. And if he were to have used traditional approaches like the serverful uh, approaches, he wouldn't have been able to do it in the time that he had done it. Um, he, at the time, we weren't interested in building um, like a, an amazing technology architecture or paving the way on something new and exciting. It, it really came... Uh, the serverless approach really came out of, out of a need of necessity, right? To build something very, very quickly in a tiny amount of time. So ACLI Guru really has been serverless from day dot. Um, within ACLI Guru, we've never used any ECS or EC2 or any of those uh, the server, server full technologies. Um, we've really focused on using and leveraging 
DynamoDB, Lambda, API Gateway, CloudWatch, SNS, and so forth. Um, so one of the reasons why we knew we needed to build a serverless platform was that we had a whole bunch of users on another platform that we needed to uh, move across, essentially, or to help encourage to move on to Guru. So um, we didn't want to have to worry about the things to do with auto-scaling or provisioning or managing servers or outages that happen in the middle of the night. We just essentially wanted to uh, have a product that would just work and scale elastically with the amount of users that had come on. So one of the interesting things about Eclat Guru is that initially we started with a Firebase database. So for those that don't know, Firebase is essentially like a big <laughs> JSON file in the cloud that essentially has like web sockets to be able to talk to it back and forth to pull data. Um, and what the way that you talk to Firebase is essentially directly from a client, so like a SPA or something like that, to the database directly, and you manage security of that database through uh, a JSON policy. So what having this allowed us to do was it essentially allowed us to not have to build out a backend at all. So in a traditional application architecture, you'd have a front end, an API layer, and a, a data persistence layer. We could actually cut out a lot of that middle work that would be involved in the data persistence and just have that directly in the client. So that was like a completely serverless database, and it was also essentially a backendless system at the time. Um, so one of the interesting things here is that um, that worked for a lot of the different various parts of the early ACLAG Guru system, except for one key piece, which was payments processing. So we needed to basically have a way or a secure, authenticated execution environment to be able to... Uh, when a payment had come in um, through something like Stripe to be able to process it securely and write into the database that, hey, like this person actually did purchase this course. And at the time, uh, serverless was really in its infancy and functions as a service was as well. So we actually looked uh, to Auth0 and Auth0 had this thing, I think it was like called web task or something like that, um, which we essentially used for that processing. Um we also had all our videos on CloudFront um, and S3 and the transcoding pipeline through that as well that managed um, all the transcoding of all of the videos on ACLAG Guru. Um, and at that time that we were actually writing this thing into a web task on Auth0, AWS had just announced Lambda. So this is back in 2015. Um, so we had our Firebase backend, we had a couple of Lambda functions and a really, uh, a really thick... Um, Angular 1x front end, and um, this was this was really awesome. Like we didn't have to deal with all these like API layers or anything like that, um, and was something that was like completely managed in AWS. So we really had this mantra of build over, sorry, sorry, buy over build, where we would essentially um, leverage as many services as we possibly could with functions of the service for compute on our back end um, to really put this school together. And we essentially wanted to avoid uh, all of the undifferentiated heavy lifting associated to having to maintain cloud servers and infrastructure and all of that sort of stuff. 
So <laughs> the story was a success, and a Cloud Guru did launch with a completely serverless um, school, and uh, that wouldn't have been possible with a, a serverful model because all of these other things that would have taken um, potentially three weeks by themselves to implement authentication or an API or auto-scaling or anything like that. That's exactly the kind of uh, startup story that I like to hear. It really breaks my heart when I hear the loads of uh, startups are going down the Kubernetes route and spending 6 to 12 months just getting some MEP out when you can do what you guys have done and just get something out and working in a couple of weeks and then go from there. And since then, I guess you guys are now a much bigger company. You have acquired the uh, Linux Academy. So how has that, I guess, transition over the last couple of years, how has that been? What were maybe some of the pain points? Was there anything that you guys have to do very differently compared to what you were in terms of how you organize yourselves, how you manage your code? And maybe we can talk about how your architecture has evolved over time as well. Yeah, awesome. So I want to preface this with, I think, the biggest challenge that we had throughout this entire process was latency. So um, serverless systems tend to be quite a lot slower, um, potentially, if you're, especially if you're not careful than perhaps their serverful counterparts. Um, so a lot of the architectural decisions we had made, we really kept performance and latency in mind. So based on what I was talking about before, we had a, a Firebase database. Um, we had an Angular 1x application and a couple of serverless functions. And as we started building out the developers, so I think at the time we had this, this kind of architecture, there was only about three of us or four of us. And uh, we knew that this was not going to scale up in terms of developers working on it, right? So this system was completely elastic and scalable from the amount of users that we could have, but it was not going to scale out with the development team. At this time as well, we were starting to think about building out a mobile application and we knew some of the shortcomings of this initial architecture or this initial MVP was that our front end was a thick client and had all the data access logic and all the services within an Angular application and there was no way we were going to be able to reasonably share that with our with a um, with a mobile application. Also, the other shortcomings of Firebase was that it had no transaction support. It wasn't running in a, um, all of the data access logic was running in the front end, which is not a reliable or consistent uh, compute environment. So if you had network issues or something like that, it could potentially mean that um, the write that you were performing to the database wasn't completed. So um, at this time, we decided that we'd actually start investing in building out serverless microservices. And um, initially, we first started with HTTP. So this was a very traditional thing that we had used during uh, other companies that we had worked at, and we were very comfortable with using REST. And that worked really well initially, but considering we were starting to build out an API and GraphQL at the time was getting a lot of attention, um, we thought, hey, like GraphQL is almost like a superset of the functionality of what REST gives us, but we actually get a lot of the fancy things like um, types, and you get this idea of an application data graph and all of these other awesome things that you don't get with REST. And also, um, it works really, really well with mobile applications because you only have to fetch the data that you need um, and what the client's specifically looking for. So as we evolved 
um, the API over time, we weren't returning to additional properties to the mobile application that they didn't need. So um, we actually transitioned um, from our old thick client with a, a database that was accessing it directly um, into a microservices model. And the way we did this was we used what's called a strangle pattern. So essentially what that meant was every time we used or built new functionality, we asked the question, would we implement it within the old way, which is that thick front end in the, in the Firebase database, or would we write it completely new in a, in a, a, um, in a microservice? So that was the way that we slowly transitioned it over. And um, at the time, AppSync wasn't a thing yet. This is back in 2016. So we're actually running, and we still do this today, we're running GraphQL JS on the Lambda function itself. And you know, um, API Gateway fronts that, but all of the business logic is being run within a Lambda function using a the GraphQL JS library. So at this time, um, we knew that we had all these different microservices, which was great, but GraphQL actually requires or encourages you to have all of your data accessible from a single endpoint. So the idea is that all your clients only know one URL that has your, your whole API on it. But we knew we also wanted um, like a microservices which were had were bounded contexts, right? So we wanted to have a service that was specific for checkout and a specific uh, service for course and student course taking experience and one for web series and transcoding and stuff like that. So the way we accomplished that was through what we <laughs> lovingly call our backend for front end or our, our BFF. And um, the way this architecture had worked was that the BFF had GraphQL.js in it, and the resolvers would call into Lambda functions that each microservice owned. So the interface to a microservice was a specific Lambda function name. And then when you called into BFF, um, BFF would run GraphQL.js, and then it would delegate getting the data down to the microservices that owned that data. Um, this model worked fairly well for quite some time, but one of the the things that we ran into when we did this was that it was essentially really slow um, because at the time, if you needed for a given query to hit four Lambda functions and sometimes they were serial, you could potentially run into four cold starts um, on your worst case. So your P99s were really, really bad with this model. Um, you know, in the case that you do hit those cold starts and you hit four of them at once, um, which could happen in, in some scenarios. And we also knew that every time we had to extend the API or build in new functionality, we had two services we had to touch. So we had BFF, and then we had um, to touch the downstream microservice, which had that functionality. And that was essentially slowing us down, right? The lead time to be able to make a change and deliver functionality to our customers became slower due to this architecture and not faster. So um, what we ended up doing is we ended up making, you know, keeping in mind performance and being able to deliver really quickly. What we did was we had microservices now expose their own GraphQL endpoints, right? And then all BFF did was it just stitched all our microservices together so it could still serve up 
all of the uh, application uh, APIs to um, to the front ends. So uh, it would actually stitch them all together at runtime and then be able to, for certain parts of the query, delegate those down to the microservices which were responsible for those. Um, so we moved from this model of essentially having one microservice having lots of Lambda functions which could have cold starts to each microservice being one Lambda function. And this really improved our performance because you know at most you would essentially only pay two cold starts. Um, and it was very unlikely you had to pay two because all the, uh, the BFF Lambda functions were always quite hot. So this is essentially how we addressed both the slowness and then also being able to deliver really quickly. And then sometime after that as well, we introduced uh, async messaging with SNS and SQS, but I'll uh, talk about that later. Thank you. That was a really detailed walkthrough, and I loved a lot of the details that you put in there. I think there's a lot of things there for us to drill into here. Uh, for example, the schema stitching and runtime you talked about, you said using some of these experimental spec in the GraphQL space. Um, I think the latest one is now what is called the Schema Federation. Yep, that's correct. Yep. Um, so what we essentially did was we even went one step further here in that the BFF doesn't actually have knowledge of the downstream services. We created our own federation uh, service essentially. And what it would do is each time a request came in, it would first call out to our federation service. Uh, it would get all of the information for the microservices that BFF was responsible for or could be able to delegate it to it would introspect the data that came back and then know which service it could delegate portions of parts of that query to through that federation that you're talking about. So we essentially even went one step further in that every time we added a new microservice, we didn't have to change our BFF. We just registered ourselves to that um, federation service. Okay, gotcha. Uh, in this case, uh, is AppSync something that you would consider in the future? I guess not for the BFF, uh, but for the microservices, because I guess that means uh, potentially a lot of the time you can call out that one Lambda invocation that you have in the microservice because uh, probably AppSync can do the job for you and go straight to DynamoDB or whatever supported the data source that it has. Yeah, so the, the great part about this architecture is um, AppSync is a GraphQL compliant API service, right? So if it were to be something that we wanted to use or experiment with, we could very well stick it behind our BFF and it should just transparently work. So we could have these microservices that are still using GraphQL JS and then some of the services that are using AppSync. Uh, at the moment, we haven't gone as far as to look into AppSync too much. Um, there's this may have changed since we've last looked into it, but I think one of the, some of the issues that me personally, I understand with AppSync can be that um, you have these like DSL files and um, you potentially relinquish some of that control that you may have if you're running GraphQL JS within Lambda entirely. Um, but what I do think AppSync potentially could be really good for us for is that rapid prototyping of a new microservice or a new backend or something like that to prove a proof of concept because you don't need to write a lot of that um, glue code. A lot of those integrations directly hook into, like you were saying, uh, they hook into DynamoDB or you can write a Lambda resolver or they can hook into things like serverless Aurora and stuff like that. 
So it's definitely something that we're we're still going to look into. Yeah, I've been working with uh, AppSync on uh, quite a few different uh, client projects now, and I have to say the developer experience there is great. It's really, really quick to get something running. Uh, I've got some reservations around uh, Amplify CLI at the moment. It, I think it takes too much decisions um, that I don't always agree with, uh, but I think just working with AppSync, uh, AppSync itself uh, has been a really good experience, at least for me. Uh, another question I've got around, uh, I guess, the, your use of GraphQL is um, how do you handle some of the sort of common challenges with GraphQL, things like overfetching or underfetching? Yeah, so um, so overfetching or underfetching. So I guess um, what we essentially do here is to avoid this idea of overfetching is that you implement dynamic resolvers within GraphQL to only fetch the data that you need. So, in theory, you shouldn't need to overfetch more than what you need within GraphQL because each entity maps to a resolver. And usually, you're going to load the whole entity and then only return a projection of that entity um, to the client. So, you're not returning some big graph of data and then only mapping to a tiny subset of it. You should only be fetching the entities that you actually need um, to resolve an individual request. Yeah, I guess uh, if you're careful and uh, when you're building your BFF, but also right, the model, uh, but also when you are building the client. But one of the things that's always, I guess I worry about in the back of my head is that, well, if uh, anyone, if an attacker is looking to launch some attack against uh, my system, the fact that they can hit a lot of different resolvers from a single entry point, asking for one piece of data and then asking for related data by traversing the data graph, they can increase the magnitude of the attack by hitting me with some overfetching queries. Is that something that you guys ever thought about or uh, worry about? Yeah, so we know that um, GitHub does a lot of stuff here due to um, the way that they work, at least from what I understand, is that they attach a complexity uh, metric to each of the, the resolvers um, within GraphQL and they have a certain level of nesting that you can actually resolve to. So whilst we haven't found the need to have to do that within ACLAG Guru just yet, there's definitely ways that we could implement that if we do need those sorts of things. Um, I guess one of the nice parts of a serverless system is that it should in theory be completely elastic. So if we do get attacked, um, a lot of the system should be able to dynamically scale up and down to be able to deal with that. But at the same time, it would be more desirable to be able to prevent that query from even executing at all. That's definitely something that we'll need to look into. Yeah, that's why I guess in the serverless world, uh, we are now calling denial service attacks, uh, denial wallet attack, <laughs> because you can force your way through it, but it's going to cost you a lot. <laughs> yeah, funnily enough, um, within serverless, I one day introduced this bug within our video player that essentially caused each of our students to continually hit a serverless GraphQL backend. And it would do that essentially like every second. And we had, you know, a few hundred students watching that video at the same time. And we ended up DDoSing ourselves. But one of the, the cool parts of it is it actually made the application faster rather than slower because of that DDoS. Um, you know, it, it wasn't sustainable because 
we're essentially calling our backend far more than we should have, but um, you know, it's quite a funny side effect of a serverless system is that it gets quicker instead of slower. <laughs> That's funny because of the whole warm uh, cold start. Uh, now you're kind of eliminating it by detoxing yourself. And it's funny you mentioned that as well, that uh, uh, Ant Stanley actually did the same thing. <laughs> uh, we launched an online workshop. Uh, uh, it was in May and, uh, and uh, he built a front end uh, and he had a bug where you know, he was making a request to the back end constantly as well every couple of seconds um so, but yeah so and well everything was working fine the system just scaled automatically but then when we looked at the bill he said oh okay what's going on there uh, it was it, it wasn't huge but still it was something that was noticeable a big spike yeah that's right hopefully it's something that your CloudWatch watch um, metrics should be able to pick up and let you know about <laughs> Um, okay, so final question, I guess, uh, around uh, the whole GraphQL side of things is, uh, are you guys are using uh, GraphQL subscriptions at the moment? So that was definitely one of the things that we haven't been able to do is that GraphQL subscription. Essentially because when we first looked into our GraphQL implementation, um, API Gateway didn't actually support WebSockets and you need some way to be able to do some kind of PubSub model to be able to implement GraphQL subscriptions, because GraphQL subscriptions are only a specification, they don't actually talk about the implementation of those. So this is really where AppSync would have been really, really nice for us to use because you get those subscriptions through AppSync. Um, at the moment, uh, we haven't really reinvestigated implementing subscriptions now with API Gateway WebSockets because we haven't had a piece of functionality that would really need them. But it's certainly something that's would be really, really nice to be able to do is having that um, having people be able to subscribe to GraphQL queries and then having the UI dynamically update once the underlying data store has changed. So something that's really, really exciting for us that um, when the right opportunity comes up, I'm super keen to be able to get onto it and use it. Yeah, something like that would be really easy to do with uh, AppSync, but probably quite hard to do with uh, API Gateway, just because of the way API Gateway implements its uh, WebSockets. It's a very low-level construct. You have to keep track of the connection ID and all of that yourself, and uh, do the mapping of uh, who's uh, subscribed to what content. Uh, but certainly, I think uh, with uh, AppSync, the whole subscription thing has been really easy. And I guess uh, it kind of brings back some of the power you had when you were running on the Firebase as well, that the uh, client can subscribe to you know, changes in the database uh, and be notified uh, you know, easily uh, when something has updated. Yeah, that's correct. And that's something that we, when we were moving away from Firebase, we ended up giving up a lot of that, those, um, the, the subscriptions that we had and um, there was a lot of things that Firebase managed for us under the hood that we now had to manage ourselves going into a, an API sort of model that um, Firebase and Firebase's SDK would deal with for us. So those are things like pipelining and caching and concurrency and all of that sort of stuff. I want to take a moment to give a shout out to this week's sponsor, Chaos Search. Chaos Search is the fully managed log analytics platform that uses your Amazon S3 storage as the data store. Companies like Armor, HubSpot, AlertLogic, and many more are already using Chaos Search as a critical part of their infrastructure and processing terabytes of log data every day. 
because Chaos Search uses your Amazon S3 storage, there is no moving data around, no data retention limits, and you can save up to 80% versus other methods of log analysis. So if you're sick and tired of your Elk stack falling over or having your data retention squeezed by increasing costs, then visit chaosearch.io today and join the log analysis revolution. Okay, and uh, let's uh, switch gear a little bit and talk about uh, the, um, some of the microservices and how you organize them into repos and CloudFormation stack and basically how you manage the whole sort of development and uh, release cycles for those microservices. Since now you've got quite a lot of different engineers working on them, so I imagine you have to think about you know how many engineers are touching the same code base at the same time and all that stuff as you scale the team. Yeah, so... In the very early days, we essentially didn't have this idea of teams. It was just individual developers all just chaotically working on features. And as we've grown out, we've expanded from that model of having, you know, essentially like single person teams into having teams that are responsible for specific domains. Um, those are cross-functional teams that each team has a PM, a designer, a lead, and then three developers. And those teams are responsible for individual domains. So one team might be responsible for things like our students, another might be for organizations, courses, um, mobile and all of those, those things. Now for each of those teams, they actually work out of the same repository. So we, at Guru, we use a mono repo. And um, the way that works is we use a service called BuildKite that every time a change happens in that repo, we run a little detection script to look at what has changed in a folder and then figure out if we need to do a redeployment based on that change within that folder. So that, that folder you can kind of think of as a project. So you've got your, your mono repo and your mono repo has lots of front end and back end projects. And then based on those changes, it'll only deploy the microservice where that change has existed. So we use um, we use uh, trunk-based um, development for that. Um, every time a change happens and it gets merged into master, we then push it into our testing environment, and then we do push-button deploys into production from there. Um, you know, only after the linters run and the automated tests and so forth. So in this case, uh, does uh, build kite the uh so are the sort of detection script, is that part of what the build kite does for you? Or is there something that you guys have to do yourself? And uh, does it detect changes that are made to uh, shared code? So maybe not to the folder where the project is, uh, you know, it is, but it made some changes to some shared code, which would impact one of the microservices. Yeah, so we, we've built kites very extensible um, and we ended up writing a plugin to be able to, Add, uh, add mono repo support into BuildKite. Um, and the answer regarding those shared packages or shared code is we don't share anything across microservices or any code across each of the folders. The only way that we manage shared code is through NPM packages. And we have a specific repository that uses Learner that um, has that shared code in it. So each of the dependencies are all versioned and packaged together. And, you know, if we bump a package, it would change a package.json or a yarn lock or something like that, and then cause a redeployment 
of that microservice so we don't have this weird problem where we change code in one place and it has to trigger a fan out of microservice deployments so each of the deployments are you know consistent versioned um, deterministic and so forth that's actually very interesting because uh, for a lot of people that I spoke with uh, that are doing uh, monorepos, one of the motivations for going monorepos is to make sheer code easier so that you can have one PR, uh, one commit, and that will update the shared code, but also all the services that depend on that shared code without having to have that separate uh, sort of flow whereby you update the shared code, you publish a new version of that library, and then you have to then go back to the services and then update each service to a new version. So what's the reason that, that you guys have decided to go against that approach of managing shared code? Is that because you want the teams to own the, the uh, update cycle for when their service is going to adopt this new shared, uh, shared code? Yeah, that's correct. So when you make, one of the things about shared code is shared code is really risky if you change it, right? And it's really hard to understand the impacts of what bugs it may introduce. So if you update a piece of shared code and then have it propagate across 10 different microservices, if you don't understand each of the microservices that uses that shared code, you don't understand potentially if you've broken something for someone else, right? So having it versioned and packaged means that teams can opt into it when they're ready to be able to operate a piece of shared code or something like that, rather than, you know, you doing it yourself and not understanding the impact. Um, uh, yeah, so that that's predominantly the reason still why we use that package style system of like versioning of libraries and NPM modules and, and, and repos. Um, but the advantage of still having that mono repo is that you can still very easily see across the entire application what changes have been made by each developer. And you don't have to now wonder within your GitHub organization, you know, what uh, what microservices are being deployed to production. You can just look at one place and it has the entire state of the world um all in one repository for your entire organization rather than having them scattered across the organization um, in different repositories. Okay, yep, that makes sense. Um, and uh, what about in terms of the communication between different microservices? Uh, I think you mentioned the SNS and SQS before. Is that basically how you are communicating between different microservices? Yeah, so for uh, synchronous flows, um, we use for synchronous flows between microservices, we use GraphQL to be able to manage those communications. And the advantages of using GraphQL is that you have a typed interface that um, that you can use to communicate between those services. And one of the cool things about GraphQL is there's a lot of really cool things that you can do when the consumer connects to the producer or the, the, the server and requests a set of data it helps with being able to deprecate those requests because you know what individual fields are being fetched by the um, consumer. And the reason and the way that that works is the consumer has to identify itself as I am X service and I'm requesting Y data. And then when you go to change that data on the server, or in this case, on, on a Lambda function that's running GraphQL.js, um, you know what 
is being consumed by you and which microservices are depending on you. So you could in theory build like a, a graph from that. Um, so our uh, request response is done through GraphQL. Um, now we've also started moving towards, and this is something out of performance as, as well, is moving to SNS and SQS. So um, microservices can in theory subscribe to data from other microservices. They could cache that data, they could transform it, anything like that. Um, within a DynamoDB table, they can keep that cache or that transformed data. And then anytime that a service changes the data that is dependent or is being cached, it can uh, push a notification to say, hey, your data is no longer uh, valid or here's your new data, store it. And one of the advantages to this is because making a service to service call can be 150, 200 milliseconds. Whereas if you're just pulling that data directly within your own service in a DynamoDB table, you've got single digit latency. So it definitely improves that performance. And then other advantages to using that SNS SQS model is that you get improved resiliency. So if your service goes down for whatever reason, um, you can still service requests from your data store that you're keeping locally. Okay. Uh, I guess uh, I've got an interesting question there is that um, with uh, something like AppSync, uh, you can say for different queries, operations, or mutations, uh, you can have different authentication models so that for the same GraphQL um, uh, schema, you can have some operations that are dedicated to uh, inter-service calls that is expected to come from another uh, GraphQL or another microservice. Um, but uh, some of them are coming from the user, so it's authenticated by Cognito, for example. So in this case, you've got microservices that are potentially being accessed through the BFF, and then there's also other uh, operations that are accessed by other microservices directly. Do you have to make some distinction in terms of the the authentication model there, and how to, or do you have to replicate basically what the AppSync does? Yeah, so we have to replicate what AppSync does. So the way that the front end talks to the back end is through um, all zero and a client side JWT, and that hooks into BFF. Once you're within the BFF environment, you're within a, a secure um, a secure area, and the way that services um, talk to each other is using uh, JWT that comes from Cognito. So service-to-service -service calls are authenticated with the JWT that's coming from a, a, Cognito, a Cognito pool. Um, the way that we manage the different types of resolvers and the way that they're called and whether they're coming from front-end or they're a back-end to back-end call or something like that is that we use uh, GraphQL um, directives to basically say who can access this can it be a viewer, which is a front end? Is it a server, which basically just says, you know, is, is it a server to server call? Um, or is it like a role within the system? So we have internal roles at ACLAG Guru that, you know, might be uh, an editor or an instructor or something like that. So we've implemented our own way of managing that problem um, that's not using um, AppSync. Okay, got it. Yeah, AppSync doesn't make that uh, very easy as well. 
um, especially when you're using cognitos uh, groups, uh, which is something that I've really struggled to implement uh, to uh, to replicate with uh, API Gateway, because you kind of end up writing have to write um, custom lambda authorizer uh, and all of that stuff as well. Uh, AppSim just make that a lot easier. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and I guess the final thing I want to get from you is uh, what about uh, your your top three AWS wish list items? Are there anything that you really love to see uh, AWS improve in this uh, serverless space? Yeah, absolutely. So the three items that I'd like to to see the uh, serverless teams implement would be um, within Lambda functions. At the moment, Lambdas don't have this idea of being able to run a backend job and be able to respond to API Gateway at the same time. So um, what I mean by that is, so say you have a bunch of analytics or telemetry. Um, those analytics or telemetry, you have two options. One is that you can um, wait for those uh, calls to come back when you're firing async jobs um, before you respond to API Gateway or you can um, or you can respond to API Gateway immediately and then those pieces of telemetry will get sent in your next Lambda invocation to that same container. Um, so the tricky part there is you can get that performance of being able to immediately respond as fast as you can in request response, but you can potentially lose pieces of telemetry if that container doesn't get spun up again. Um, so what would be really nice is Lambda to be able to respond to the browser who or to whoever's calling you, but also still be able to have um, those pieces of telemetry still get sent off um, after your your callback or your promise um, in your handler is, is, is finished. Yeah, that lack of uh, background processing is uh, has been a, a pain in the butt for all the different vendors. Uh, I do a lot of work with Alumigo uh, and all the other different vendors have the same problem as well that uh, to collect the telemetry and traces about your application, it can end up eating into your uh, invocation time because there's just no background processing. Uh, but I think something may be coming uh, in the future to address this because it's something that's been uh, asked for about uh, for a very, very long time now. Uh, or the fact that uh, there's no, you can only have uh, one subscription filter for CloudWatch logs, uh, which is also a big pain point. Um, so Dale, thank you so much uh, for joining me today and uh, for sharing your experience uh, and your journey with uh, a Cloud Guru. It's been uh, really insightful and uh, I'd love to hear uh, some more of what you guys are doing in the future. Yeah, thank you very much for having me on. It was a lot of fun. So final thing before we go, uh, how can people find you on the internet and do you have any sort of personal project that you want to tell us about? So if you want to find me on the internet, I'm on Twitter. Um, my handle is Aneptur, E-N-E-P-T-U-R-E, -E, or you can find me on LinkedIn at Dale Salter. And is there any project that I'm working on? Currently, I'm just tinkering with serverless Aurora, just playing around with that, seeing how RDS works with a serverless model. So um, nothing, nothing there too interesting just yet, but I'll be sure to share it around once I've finished uh, tinkering. Excellent. Looking forward to reading that uh, blog post. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Okay, man. Take it easy. And again, thank you so much for joining us today and uh, stay safe. All right. Thank you. See ya.
That's it for another episode of Real World Serverless. To access the show notes and the transcript, please go to realworldserverless.com. And I'll see you guys next time.